This is an ABC podcast. Hello. Welcome to the meh field. <laughs> You'll, um... I knew it was coming. I yeah. knew it was coming. I didn't know it was yeah. coming. I still knew it was coming. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those ones when it happens, you go, of course. Sorry, dear listener, you have no idea why that it'll become clear, I hope, in the next couple of minutes. Um, Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Um, we negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life on this show. And um, today's topic is, Scott... Sorry, did you really just say the meh field? Yeah. Oh, man. Now tell, explain why. All right. So, look, it's no great secret. It's going to come as news to exactly nobody. That we I like live, that you're going the long way around this, too. That we <laughs> live, set it up for a one-word answer. Ah, come on, come on, come on, come on. <laughs> that that our, our common life is awash with strong emotions. We've, we've been talking about that intermittently uh, over the course of this year. I think what's interesting to me is that it's not just that these strong emotions come from nowhere or are simply products of our being human, as if to be human is to have strong emotions. I think to some extent, these strong emotions have been commodified, have been commercialized. Uh, so, for instance, big social media platforms and then after social media platforms, the mainstream media increasingly capitalize, use language that is quite deliberately incendiary or hyperbolic or alarmist or catastrophist. Um, just before coming on the show, we'll eat. I did a little scroll through a favorite news site. I shall not name it. In the top eight stories, I counted in the headlines, disgrace, outrage, shameful, elated, disgusting, monster. In the first eight stories that led the site. It just, it kind of captures, I think, something for me. Big day for minefield reviews, sounds like. It is. It is. Uh, no, this is not all about our show. Um, but I think what's, you know, I mean, some very, very fine political philosophers and media critics have described social media platforms like Facebook as resentment machines or anger machines or anxiety machines. Um, strong emotions are what drive traffic. Strong emotions appeal to readers. And so one of the things that's so interesting to me is that this is not a new phenomenon. It's not even a, simply a social media phenomenon. Uh, one of my favorite philosophers, the great 19th century Danish philosopher, Søren Kierkegaard, saw precisely this at work in the first stirrings of what we would come to know as the popular press, that uh, opinions need to be put on sale. Uh, those opinions need to be something that exhibit a certain degree of confected moral seriousness so that you can slap those opinions on your lapel or wear them on your head. You can wear them out and you can then parrot. You can imitate those opinions as if the strong emotions that go with it, the moral seriousness that they embody were yours from the beginning. So I think there's something about the commercial nature of our environment that has made strong emotions and displaying strong emotions something that is maybe more prevalent than it otherwise would be. I would also say, and this is something we have discussed at some length on this show, I think there's been a great change in moral philosophy as well. So that strong emotions are now the register of, they are indices of, maybe even they're the sine qua non of moral seriousness. And so as we discussed with Chris Cholkas a number of weeks ago on the other side of the Ramadan series, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. As if being devoid of strong emotions were somehow being irresponsible uh, or somehow not being morally attuned enough. So this is the environment in which we live. I think it's a commercial environment, and I also think it's a, an intellectual environment. It's a zeitgeist. I no, would add something. Yes, please. Go. It's a visual environment. Yes, nice. That's right. Um, That's right. Yeah, one of, the, one of the things that television did, I mean, television is a medium of emotion, hmm. right? Hmm. And then the internet, I think, heightens that further. 
But there's an interesting thing that I that apparently happened. I mean, I wasn't around when television arrived. Weren't you? But I've read. No, oddly, You're an old um, soul. I would have sworn that you were there. Well, it's hard to believe in a television yeah. without me, isn't it? But um, no. It, but I've read literature about that period where made an interesting observation about the impact that television had on newspapers. Mm. In that newspapers, once television arrived, newspapers then had to become more emotive. That's exactly right. And the way in which they described the news became much more visual um, and, yeah, just more hook, hooky, I guess. Yeah. That So less of the sort of dull prose that <laughs> characterised newspapers in the pre-televisual era. So there's something not just about the prevalence of vision and images, and we've discussed images quite a bit recently, um, it's not just about the prevalence of that, but the ethos that's embedded within them that then pervades even non-visual forms of communication. Mm. And I would say something like, I mean, social media is an interesting example. I would say something like Twitter is interesting in this regard, in that even though it's overwhelmingly textual, that's changed a bit, but it's overwhelmingly textual, it's still visual in the in a way, right? It's there's there's something about the brevity of it and and so on that captures the ethos of the of the image, and so that sort of visual ethos is irredeemably, I think. Emotive. Yeah, I think that's anyway, right. And we're it, taking the long way to getting to the top. No, of the yeah. no, no, no. We are getting directly. We're making a beeline. Actually, what's interesting, Belid, <laughs> is that it's a drunk bee. Ah, well, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> that could actually be the new name for the show. I love that. The drunk bee. The drunk bee. Um, so, someone's got to make that their Twitter handle. I swear. <laughs> um, but Charles Baudelaire, the French essayist, poet, artifact hunter, cultural critic writing in Paris at the end of the, near the end of the 19th century. I mean, he actually stated quite bluntly, the index of the reputability of a newspaper is how many images it has. The more images, the more it Ooh. fundamentally lies to you. The fewer the images, the greater its truthfulness. Now, yeah. I don't and we think... used to call tabloids news pictorial. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I don't think we'd necessarily, you know, words lie fully as much as, as images do, but I think you're absolutely right about the hookability, the arrestability, the arresting nature of images and the extent to which, I mean, again, this is something to some extent we've talked about before. All of news is tabloid. I mean, we are living in the era of the tabloidization of even the most reputable sites. I, I just, I, I, again, we're not, this isn't exactly the topic of, of the show, but you know, even seeing the what little... What happened to the B-line? Yeah, what happened on. to the B-line? Hang on, hang on. But, you know, even sites that I would almost swear by, I mean, if it was a religion, I would almost convert, even something as serious as the New York Times, they're these, they're these gimmicks in the headlines. I am an X, and this is what I yeah. saw. Uh, this person did this, and you'll never guess what happened next. Or the so-called law of three. If you want to do kind of roundups, you have to mention three things in the headline in order to get maximum number of people. But this apparently is analytics driven. Uh, to get the most number of people, you have to mention three things in the headline. If you mention four uh, or if you mention two, then the number drops off precipitously. So these are all appealing to, I think, certain maybe aesthetic um, vices in our time. Let's just get now straight to the point. So in a time... <laughs> Eight and a half minutes. Now, this is great. I, I, I loved every second of this. In a time of hot emotions and in which our emotions are both moralized and commercialized, there is a... I'm not sure if it's, a, it's an emotion. Our guest can tell us if he thinks it is or not. But let's just call it at this stage a disposition. I think that resentment is probably a disposition. I think enviousness is probably a disposition. I think contentment is probably a disposition. But they all have... They all have sort of emotive elements to it. Um, I would like to make the case that this is an emotion, or, but, but I think ultimately it probably is a kind of, it's a, it's a state that is cultivated. It's a way of one's being in the world that is cultivated. And it certainly has its emotive dimensions, uh, but it need not be an emotion as such. And that's ambivalence. Now, when you describe this as the meh field... I think that's confusing ambivalence with indifference. And I do think they're different. Indifference suggests, uh, couldn't really care less. Or it just doesn't register for me. Or I haven't got a dog in this fight. Or I can't be bothered. Or I can't be bothered, yeah. Or, or in, its most, in its more extreme forms, its more vicious forms, it's maybe something like callousness. 
the thing that um, I just want to raise a name now that I'm going to, I feel, keep coming back to in our discussion. But I remember once in one of his very earliest writings, the American philosopher Stanley Cavell once said that the failure to acknowledge isn't the same thing as not having knowledge. So being ignorant of something means that I have a void. There's something that I don't have within me, and that's a void that can be filled up. The failure to acknowledge is, means the presence of something. It means having a morally problematic blind spot. It means not being able to see that which is there. And I think the callousness is probably more of the latter. Um, Indifference in is, oh, I haven't got really feelings about that. Callousness in an extreme form is something is there that I ought to see. And because of a condition of, say, moral blindness, I can't see it. One is the presence of an absence, <laughs> which just sounds bizarre. Yeah. There's a void. The other is the presence of a flaw, a fault, a moral deformity that prevents me from seeing what really is there. Um, ambivalence is something different. Ambivalence, if I can put it this way, is a refusal to condemn, a refusal to take sides, the inhabiting of a space in between two things. So, for instance, if you and I listen to a really heated debate, and if I said, I'm, I'm or, or, or that we saw something happen. I mean, we didn't discuss the slap, for instance, that happened on the Oscars. I, well, I yeah. feel genuinely ambivalent about that. Genuinely ambivalent. Yeah. I have not got strong feelings. I've got some feelings on both sides, and I'm not prepared in any way to leap to any form of moral conclusion or judgment about that. By the way, wasn't the most unsufferable thing about that all of the hot takes? Yes, yes, yes. And I'm so proud of us that we didn't talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe the Ramadan series got in the way. I'm not sure. <laughs> Thank but, God um, for it. Yeah. But I, it goes to your point, doesn't it? But see, if you asked me about that issue or about that event, I, my response would have been, I, I'm sorry, but I could not care less. Yeah. Now, you would therefore not accuse me of ambivalence. No. No, I wouldn't. What would you accuse me of there? Indifference. Indifference. Yeah. And you would say that's a lesser response? No. I would say that there are some things, if the response that it elicits from us is indifference, there are some issues for which I would say that that response is probably culpable. That response is inappropriate. Right. Um, I mean, that's, that's no great, profound thing to say. They're forms of injustice. They're expressions of suffering. They're issues of of equity and of common decency, that if we were indifferent towards them, there's something fundamentally wrong with us. Mm. But I think being ambivalent when sides are being taken and both sides are saying, this is why the other side can't be trusted. This is why that argument is malign. This is the secret motive that lay beyond that. This is why this matter matters. Being ambivalent when everybody around you is attempting to try to get you to take their side. It seems to me that there are, two, there are two reasons why that form of ambivalence may well be important. One is, okay, I mentioned Stanley Cavell before. I'm going to go in for my greatest hits. I've, I love the poet Walt Whitman. And one of his ideas, which if you take it too far, it worries me on all sorts of different levels. But he said that, such is my peculiarity and such is my universality that if I reject something, I am rejecting in a real way something of myself. One of Whitman's great observations is that certain forms, especially in a democracy, because of it's characterized by a form of radical egalitarianism, one of the forms of conceit that's often bound up with expressions of moral judgment. That's wrong. That person's a monster. Forms of, say, you know, radical disapprobation or radical condemnation of another person or another group. That one of the things that that does by engaging so fully and so fulsomely in an expression of outward-facing moral condemnation is it refuses any suggestion that we might have to look inward at our own forms of culpability or complicity. I mean, in Jesus's 
aphorism, for instance. It's picking out the splinter in someone's own eye uh, and ignoring the log or the plank in our own. So there is something about it. You know, it's, it's slightly different, isn't it? Well, it can be. I'm, I'm not saying... ignoring one's faults rather than acknowledging complicity. Well, well, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I mean you know, this is something that Immanuel Kant, for instance, I think saw very, very clearly. It's certain forms of outward-facing condemnation uh, are ultimately forms of self-aggrandizement. It's the ability to raise ourselves up morally at the expense of, some, of someone else. So I, th- I think some forms of radical moral condemnation of others, the radical kind of um, uh, almost exclusion of others from a conscionable moral community, there is something about that that I think is an expression of moral vanity. So that's where I think ambivalence can be helpful. I think the other thing, though, is that there is a kind of virtue, not in every respect, but in many respects, there is a virtue in inhabiting the interval between warring sides, which simply yep. acknowledges that the truth doesn't automatically accrue to one side of this debate. But there is a humanity, there is a worthiness and an honor and a glory and there's also a degree of self-deception on both sides of the debate but also but also that these differing perspectives each capture a truth yes nicely said um and it's a cliche to say the truth is in the middle and i i wouldn't want even to insist that the truth is always in the middle Mm. but the point the reason i think that's become a cliche is that it's often true precisely because opposing arguments often do distill truths and they're not necessarily competing truths. It's just that they're partial or that they are appropriated by one side or each side of the argument in such a way as to obscure the things that are false in that argument mm. and to make them somehow exclusive. So you're right. If, if what ambivalence is doing is somehow brokering between these positions so that the truth of each reflection can be accommodated somehow and they can be reconciled with one another and it can become a clarifying thing, then then yes. I'm just not sure I would call that ambivalence. Yeah, but see, Walid, I don't think it's necessarily brokering because there you're saying that ambivalence has a telos. Ambivalence is functioning as a mediator between two positions. I don't think that's quite what it is. Can I, can I give an example? Yeah. I think quite powerfully convincedly, I'll say, that in a democracy, in a healthy democracy, the proper disposition of every citizen after an election should be ambivalence. Not because, not because you don't have political convictions, not because you don't think that particular political issues matter, but that what an election does when one's own team doesn't get up, when one side doesn't win, is that you then have the opportunity for the next three, four, maybe five years to see the world through the peculiar valence, through the light that is provided by an opposing or different set of political values. So the the idea of prosecuting an election as if it represented an existential threat, as if it represented keeping one's enemies out, and preserving national identity or the future of the planet or something like that. I mean, okay, there's some instances where there really are seismic, monumental issues that are up for grabs. In the last half century, we've seen issues where I think fundamental matters of justice that ought to grip any citizen of good conscience have been fought over. Okay, I, I, I accept that entirely. But I think in a healthy democracy where elections are fair and transparent, I think the response should almost invariably be ambivalence. It's not so much that I lost, but now I get to see the world differently. And so what ambivalence would be there wouldn't be kind of brokering a middle path, but it would be being prepared to linger there in the middle without two hot feelings of either despair or of elation yeah. drawn one that, side. That's preserving a civic bond, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, but... That's no small thing, Walid. No, and it's becoming increasingly important mm. um, because it's becoming increasingly rare. I guess 
I don't know, there's a couple of ways I could go here. One would be to say, yes, but there are some election results that are genuinely disastrous. Yes, that's right. And so there has to be a a, a point at which, the, you know, there's a response that's appropriate for that, That and, and ambivalence probably isn't it. Um, the, the tricky thing is identifying when that has actually happened rather than you responding in an impassioned way to you know, your own demons, you know, mm. the, the spectre of something that is yet to materialise because you've you've managed to turn your opponent into a demon when, when they actually aren't. Um, and then there's just the inherent unpredictability of politics, right? The person who is elected is very rarely the person who's in office because events take over and all kinds of things happen to the person once they're in the office. Mm. So, yeah, I mean... Even there, Walid, even there. So let's just say that this really were a consequential election and there really was something up for grabs. There is still a case to be made for ambivalence because, for instance, let's just say that I'm passionately devoted to a particular cause. Let's just say that I think that the most important thing, the most important thing in Australia's national life and Australia's sense of identity and its reckoning with the crimes and the injustices of its past was conducting a referendum that would see a First Nations voice uh, introduced into the Constitution and being incorporated within our uh, federal politics. Let's just say that I thought that this is f- a fundamental issue and that no citizen of good conscience can yep. be indifferent towards it. I would still say that the worst thing, the worst way that I could respond if the election didn't go the way that I wanted and the issue was taken off the table would be anger would be resentment and betrayal, would be kind of marshalling the tribe of the already convinced, trying to mobilize our forces and demonize those who weren't on side. Well, the fundamental observations, I think, the great wisdom of someone like Martin Luther King Jr. was to see that anger is sterile and that anger corrodes and corrupts the very bonds of friendship and mutual concern and recognition upon which democratic politics can in fact be based. So even there, even there, I think a degree yeah. of ambivalence where you're willing to linger in between. I think it's, this... it's, not, it's not a hard enough example. So at the at the risk of fulfilling Godwin's law, <laughs> was ambivalence the appropriate response to the election of Hitler? No, of course not. Right. Of course not. So there's clearly a, a point somewhere between the voice to parliament and Hitler <laughs> where, that th- where that threshold gets crossed, right? Yes, that's right. And I guess I guess what I'm saying is I'm not entirely sure where, like in in a, as a matter of abstract principle, I don't know how you can identify that because no. you can't even use it as a human right. You can't even draw on human rights for that. No, that's right. Because um, you know, I guess depending on your perspective, for better or for worse, um, the concept of human rights has now been so expanded that just about everything can be framed as a human rights issue. And and also in public rhetoric, human rights can be effectively weaponized to make something into a categorical all or nothing either or issue. Yeah. Right. So I don't I don't know how to articulate those things. And that's where I worry about this. I think you're right. Like I think in theory everything you're saying is right. The problem is when it comes to the nuts and bolts of okay when is is it no longer a matter of ambivalence? I think you end up in a position where it really comes down to what you find worthy of being so impassioned about. Yes, that's true. That's <laughs> and we return to the ethos of the image, right, that that we are in a moment, actually it's probably a phase that's been building for decades, right, mm. perhaps even a century, of um, the inflaming of passion so that more and more seems to be beyond that threshold. Mm. You're basically saying that threshold needs to be lowered. Yes. I'm saying I agree with you, but I'm saying I don't know there's an objective way to realise where that threshold is. Yep, that's probably right. Okay. Well, we've reached a dead end. Let's get a guest. (laughs) This is The Minefield. Uh, You can listen to the show on RN, which you may be doing right now. Uh, But you can listen to it as a podcast wherever you like. So on the ABC Listen app at your leisure or by following The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. It's a great honour to have our guest for this week's program, and especially for this topic. Gordon Marino is Professor Emeritus of Philosophy and the Director of the Hong Kierkegaard Library 
at Sonoloff College in Minnesota. And he's also written a fabulous article for me. It's one of the things that kind of got us thinking about this topic. We've got a link on the website. He wrote it for ABC Religion Ethics. It's called The Importance of Being Ambivalent. Gordon, it's a great pleasure to finally have you on the minefield. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Boy, it sounds like a minefield. Boy, you guys have been traveling with Kierkegaard were called Seven League Boots in this discussion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just going back to what you were saying about Kierkegaard, uh, you're correct uh, in, uh, that he, he arose in an era in which he had the beginning of modern mass media, but also the visual images. Uh, the battle that got in with the Corsair was all around caricatures, hmm. you know, so... So I wanted to sort of pivot to a little something that we haven't taken in. Well, I've touched on it very briefly. I was hoping to kind of seed the ground. Um, But I want to put something, I guess, much more explicitly to you, and then you can sort of take the conversation wherever you think it ought to go. So far, what we've talked about is ambivalence when it comes to things outside of us. Ambivalence when it Mm -hmm. comes to matters of public debate or common concern or flashpoints in our common life, matters of justice or equity. Ambivalence also, and certainly if we proceed from Kierkegaard, ambivalence has far more to do with the cultivation of the inner life. So that, for instance, I mean, Kierkegaard thought that the indulging, the engaging in kind of relentless chatter, the wearing cheaply of opinions that the modern media produced, that that was at the great expense of, it caused the shriveling of, the life of interiority. There is something about ambivalence, I think, that has to do with self-knowledge, that has to do with the recognition of one's own impurity or one's own complicity in the very things that I feel maybe most prepared to condemn outside of myself. To to what extent is that a, a major aspect, I guess, is what I'm asking, of ambivalence? Do we proceed from ambivalence and self-knowledge or self-acknowledgement and then proceed out, or have I gotten that the wrong way around? Well, I mean, ambivalence being mixed feelings, one of the, no, I think about it more in terms of a individual level. I mean, so the inability to tolerate ambivalent feelings, I think, is very destructive and uh, certainly nurtured here in the Midwest. So that's what I was writing about is you know, we, we have all these ambivalent feelings, mixed feelings about things. Now, one of the things I disagreed with you in this conversation was I can be ambivalent about about something and still make a decision. In fact, I had to make a decision. For example, I was a, I wrote about the issue in Ukraine, and I, I was ambivalent about the positions the Ukrainians took. I mean, they could have taken the position the Danes took uh, when the Nazis invaded uh, Denmark and said, yeah, okay, come on in. We're not going to let you slaughter everybody, and uh, we'll have a resistance. But I still, I, I still would have uh, certainly endorsed Ukrainians, I think, but I was ambivalent about it. So I think you can be ambivalent and, and still make choices. So, uh, I, but I think it is important to be able to tolerate mixed feelings, to be able to tolerate cognitive dissonance. If you can't do that, that's that's a real problem, and I don't think many people can. That's why one of when I as a philosophy professor, one of the things that was most important to me was having my students learn to give the other position its very best argument, as opposed to a caricature of it, which yeah. is what we get generally in, in the media today, right? Uh, for example, some of the cable uh, news networks that I listen to, they'll, they'll put up some dumb statements by some conservative and carry on about them by ad infinitum, you know, and uh, as opposed to, you know, giving them the best argument. What's their um, best argument? And so I, I connect the capacity to tolerate ambivalence with the ability to tolerate cognitive dissonance, which I think is very low today. Um, Gordon, I don't mean to interrogate this example, but I, I guess I think it would just be useful for me to understand exactly what you mean by ambivalence. Can we go back to your position on your Ukraine and your... Yeah, what, what was the ambivalence exactly there in the Ukrainian example? Okay, for me, the ambivalence was this, that uh, the, the amount of destruction that was going to take place by fighting the Russians, right, I took to be enormous, right? And it's going to be cataclysmic and even potential uh, nuclear war, right? As opposed to, say, doing what the Danes did and saying, okay, come, come on in. <laughs> They're not, you're not going to occupy this whole country. We'll have a resistance and uh, uh, lives will be saved. So I, I could see the values of both positions, although in the end I think uh, I certainly endorsed what the Ukrainians ultimately did. I mean, I, so there I was had ambivalent feelings. Di- certainly could see different arguments for both positions, right? 
So that would be ambivalence on a political level. But on a personal level, it's, we have mixed feelings about everybody, you know, and uh, oftentimes those mixed feelings are repressed or uh, not allowed to have them. And I think that's, that's dangerous. I think Freud saw that to bring somebody in very clearly, right? I, I guess what it is is that we've come to regard ambivalence as the opposite of moral clarity. Mm. Is that probably the best way of framing this, that what you describe isn't a lack of moral clarity. If anything, you would probably more accurately describe it as mixed feelings as a result of clear moral thinking. Yeah, that's, I think that's right. Yeah, and maybe that leads you to a position where you see there are no good options or, or you see the merit in conflicting options and it's possible for two people to be right. Maybe this is a way of putting it. Two people can be right, though one might be more right than another. Um, okay, yeah, yeah. You know, because the world isn't a mathematical equation. But in an age that wants to prize moral clarity, moral certainty, I mean, I've even seen, um, it was quite a popular argument, if only for a little while, maybe it still is quite popular, about journalism being something that needs to be remade along the lines of moral clarity rather than along the lines of some kind of tradition of objectivity or, you know, a stenographer sort of tradition, which then raises all sorts of questions mm -hmm. about, well, what's the source of this moral clarity? Whose moral clarity exactly predominates and so on? But I, I raise that only to illustrate the mood of the moment, which is that it's a moment that is demanding from us at every moment in every situation, moral clarity, that is firm positions on things. And you can't prevaricate, you can't equivocate on any of, of those sorts of things. So maybe what needs to happen is the rehabilitation of the morality of ambivalence. Right. So, for example, William, I, I perhaps you've heard about the controversy in the United States, a discussion of the Roe versus Wade. The Supreme Court looks like they're going to overturn that. Just tremendous outrage in the country. But it's important to be able to see uh, why, why some people might be happy about that, why that, uh, to see it from their position, even though you could be against it. Mm. Right. So you can have, I think that would be real moral clarity being, say, no, I think this is a woman's right or whatever, but I can see why some of the things uh, abortion is murder might feel this way. There's something that seems to me, though, that we're kind of stepping around, which for mm -hmm. me goes right to the heart of the issue. And it certainly goes to the way that I believe Kierkegaard described the problem. When we talk about moral clarity or taking a stand or adopting an opinion or or, or aligning oneself, or taking sides. These aren't all things that one simply does internally. I don't simply have a strong feeling. I have to communicate that feeling. Uh, I mean, Kierkegaard recognized right. this early on, that, that an opinion is no good. An opinion is something you have to wear. It's something you have to flaunt. It's something you have to show to other people. Taking a side, being morally clear, being uh, determined or decisive, these are all things that are communicated, which is to say these are all things that are external to us. They are outward facing. There's something, however, about ambivalence that is very difficult to communicate. I mean, body language can do it. The kind of the shrug, the moving of the head from side to side, the holding up of the hands on both sides of oneself to say, I can see a little bit of this and a little bit of that. But really, I mean, you referred to it before, Gordon, as having mixed feelings. This is all part of the domain of interiority. It's the ability, I think, to remain in oneself, in a position of not taking sides, of a kind of uncertainty, but a deliberate uncertainty, a deliberate... Yeah, with, regard to, with regard to the inwardness here, if I torture myself about having certain feelings about someone, can't tolerate those feelings, that's not a good thing. And uh, it's a lack of inwardness in some way. So what I'm trying to propose is that it's important to be able to, for us to acknowledge like in the, in the article I wrote, I talked about one time wanting to push my mother's wheelchair down a hill, right? I love her, you know? So this ability to acknowledge certain feelings or, and, and not torture ourselves about them, I think, uh, is important. And that's for Kierkegaard with this issue of opinions. Yeah, he, I know the fragments. He says, um, you know, opinions, uh, I don't have any in the beginning of the preface of the fragments, uh, I don't have any opinions and that kind of thing. We certainly had opinions in the attack on Christendom, hmm. which he expressed, right? So in the end, he, uh, he expressed some very strong opinions and wrote as a journalist then. He even adopted a style that he considered journalistic, one of the 
part of Kierkegaard's genius was his ability to, different, to adopt different voices, different registers. There he was very clear about what yeah, Christianity is, uh, Christendom is making a, a fool of God. So uh, there was a point at which um, he certainly did express an opinion. Would it be fair to say that Kierkegaard was really opposed not to opinions but to unearned opinions and that that's kind of what it was that mass media was promoting was this idea that easy access to opinions so you don't actually even need to work particularly hard to form them you don't even really need to form them you just need to be able but to you, he was very emphatic that we need to appropriate them it's even a language that we very seldom hear today like have you and i i give my students spar them all the time about this about you, you espouse such and such views well how, how do you know they're have you appropriate them uh, what's your passionate relationship to them and that's what he emphasized right not just a memorize all these slogans or, you know, uh, hit like on Facebook. Uh, the question is, have, have you taken it inwardly? Now, his view, again, was, I mean, I think one of his greatest moral insights was about self-deception. And he, his claim is, let's say, take the sickness on a death, a book I think that is his best, and one he certainly thought was, uh, I think, his best, in which he, he talks about we, this uh, willed ignorance of things, right? We don't, want, we don't want to appropriate things. We don't want to see see things properly because they, they're going to, if we do, we'll feel required to act in ways that are, aren't consistent with our desire for happiness and self-fulfillment. So uh, this pulling the wool over our own eyes, I think he is, is extremely perceptive about. Our ethical evasions, I've mean, written about, for example, he talks about admiration as one of those, right? I see uh, what someone like Navalny does, and I admire it as though he was some kind of moral athlete and that I didn't have the same capacities, right? As though being moral was a, a talent, like an athlete or a, an artist. So, <laughs> I think that's, look, this is a really helpful distinction, I think. Being ambivalent isn't being opposed to having an opinions as if opinions or strong opinions were somehow a bad thing. But... I guess one of the things that struck me increasingly strongly, particularly over the last few years, is that the way that we conduct our debates publicly, the certainty that is elicited from us and that is required for, how can you not have an opinion about that? What that does is it almost shrivels or it collapses the interior space within which we can weigh up, we can take ownership of what it is that we really believe, what it is we truly value. And it means that what we then say on behalf of something or against something can really have the ring of truth and can be, to some extent at least, consistent with the way that we believe we ought to fundamentally live and, in a genuine sense, the way that we in fact do live. Excuse me, so if I understand you correctly, you're saying this kind of uh, atmosphere of moral outrage doesn't allow us any room for an interiority or valuing the views of someone we disagree with. And uh, yes, but, but, but also that moral outrage, as it's demanded from us, as a form of moral seriousness or expression of commitment to a particular cause that is unarguable, mm -hmm. that's like uh, sort of reading the first little bit of Lord of the Rings and going directly to the very end and wondering why on earth the hobbits weren't simply taken to Mount Doom by the eagles. The way that you get someplace matters. The path that you take, the way that you engage with arguments, the forms of, of self-searching and the requirement of, am I really, do I really take responsibility for what it is I believe mm -hmm. and what it is that I value? The mm -hmm. way that you get there matters. And I think the extent to which we are demanded, you have to have an opinion. And if that opinion is, isn't this, then it's, it's ab initio wrong. Uh, without mm -hmm. recognizing the particular way in which knowing what we believe and valuing and taking responsibility for what it is that we feel, how you get there matters. That's a good point. That's very well put. I agree. So what, what ambivalence then does is it permits us to remain in the space. And look, I just have to say, I love the example that both of you gave about being willing to articulate and articulate meaningfully and generously and charitably and nobly the arguments of others, not as if they were of no value and I'm simply parroting some kind of caricature of them or giving the worst possible examples or the worst possible expressions of, but as if these things really do reflect a kind of moral intensity and energy that I might not value in the same way, but it is something that is 
worthy, that is of value. And so being able to live, I guess, in between judgment and acceptance, being able to occupy that space in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I, I agree with you. But you can't, for example, politically in the United States, you, you can't do that anymore. Or people at least don't think they can and, and remain in, in political power. Hmm. That would be suicide at some level for most of them. That's how at least our elected officials think of it. Yeah. You know, mm. So not just them either. That's no, not, not just them. That's right. um, that voice belongs to Gordon Marino, who's our guest on the minefield today. He's a professor emeritus of philosophy at St. Olaf College in Minnesota. Well, that allays my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. I want to ask, though, about whether or not there is an assumption lurking beneath this conversation so far that all positions, and specifically the positions of our enemy on all issues, are held in good faith. So I wonder, the reason I come to this point or arrive at this question is that when I play out the conversation I would have in my mind with people who I think are being too strident on something or falling afoul of this sort of virtue of ambivalence that we're talking about, the response I imagine I would get is, yes, but I'm not arguing with people that have good faith opinions here. I'm arguing with a cynical ploy to achieve X or a a cynical ploy to weaponize the prejudice against people Y for purpose Z or or something like that. And on the one hand, it's attractive to hear that and, and say, oh, well, that's exactly your problem right there is you, you're presuming bad faith and then you, as a result, the whole conversation becomes tainted to the extent that you can no longer have a conversation. But there's also the possibility they're right about that. And so I don't know what to do at that point. What if they are right about that? Is there a point at which there's no, no nothing really to be said for ambivalence or for giving the opposition the best version of its argument because... That presupposes a level of good faith and integrity that's just not there. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, Kierkegaard and works of love says we should presuppose the lovingness, the love of others that they all have love within them. And I always read that as we should presuppose the, that it's our duty to presuppose the goodness of others to, to not not adopt that kind of cynicism. But so you're saying that if I'm so cynical about the other person's views. It's hard to give them a, a fair read, something like that. Which is, I think, what's happening, right? Yes, I think that's that right. people are presupposing yeah. the bad faith of, of others. Therefore, it's like there's no fraud okay, in this suppose, argument. Supposing the person that uh, you think is in bad faith is uh, making their argument or holding the position in order to maintain power because they think it's for the benefit of their constituents or country or whatever. So they do have a reason they might have a reason for twisting facts or not considering the arguments of others. And it's that they think it's in the best interest of the country or whatever. But even that's a level of good faith you may not wish to accord, right? You might say, no, this is purely self-interest. They know by doing this, Mm. they, I don't know, for example, can manipulate prejudices in the electorate for their own financial gain or their own political gain. Okay, but suppose suppose their aim is to, they think the world would be better if people adopt their position, right? Not necessarily. Just that their life might be better because they are enriched or empowered. So that would, that, that would, that would be the cynical view, right? Yes. That's so if I assume that view, that, that's the cynical view, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and on the one hand, there must be times that that view is right. Because the law of averages says that would have to happen at some point. Yeah. There's many cases in the U.S. where people will espouse a view on YouTube all over the place and then say they didn't hold it. Right. <laughs> really? Perhaps that's evidence, right? But I, I okay, so... We agree then that it's possible that, that that cynical view will be right at some point in, in mm-hmm. history, yeah. in time, whatever. That will be right occasionally. We seem to agree that we are in a moment where that view is far too pervasive, mm. that that sort of assumption is made. The only way I can think to yeah. solve this riddle, and I don't know if this is a good way, but Gordon, Scott, you can guide me on this, is have you done sufficient work in reaching your conclusion as to their bad faith? In other words, is your assumption of the other's bad faith itself cynical and itself done in bad faith? 
And we can, there we can ask what would prove to us that they weren't in bad faith. And if we can't come up with anything, then that's a kind of dogmatic kind of cynicism, isn't it? I really. <laughs> so if I, if I said to you, if you said I was in bad faith about uh, holding out position I had, and uh, I said, well, what would convince you that I wasn't? And you said, oh, nothing. Yeah, and, that's a good way of doing it, actually. So, so if I were to say to you, you're only holding that position because you because of your racism. Mm-hmm. Which is a very prevalent view right now, right? I mean, at least here, yeah, that, especially. Yeah. I mean, the many. Yeah, I mean, for example, uh, I would have had many heated discussions with students, and they'll say, "Well, that's easy for you to say as a as a white guy. Well, just you, you can't judge the truth or falsity of a position based on its uh, motivations, right? I mean, it could be easy for me to say it. it; might also be true. And this is one of the issues that does come up with some of. the Debates about critical races and things like that is like, well, you're you're just holding that position because you're you're defending uh, white privilege. Okay, right? so now now we're going to run headlong into debates about standpoint epistemology and all this sort of stuff, which which we'll do yeah, on another yeah, show. Yeah, but, but that closes any possibility of a discussion. I mean, I've been there before with, at times with students, and uh, again, I think it's a fallacy. Isn't it a causal fallacy? Like, for example, the idea that just because I wish there's a God uh, and that's what motivates my belief in God, it doesn't follow that there's no God. Hmm. Right. So I think in some of these discussions, there's a kind of fallacy there that if you assume the person has a certain motive, you can assume their positions are all wrong. But, but no, but it might follow so, that I shouldn't pay attention to your position and I should maybe pay attention to someone else with your position, in which case I'm prepared to at that point to extend an assumption of bad faith at you. Yeah, but what would be what would be your evidence? Let's give an example. What would be your evidence for thinking that someone was in bad faith? Let's take a particular example. I think they're always helpful. I think examples uh, are, and that's one of the yeah. things I appreciate about Kierkegaard. He'll he'll always give you uh, something from the folktale, or after he articulates a very abstract point. So let's let's work with an example here. Oh, jeez, you're making me meet Kierkegaard's level. That's that's a big ask. I um, it's hard to think of examples that don't immediately become incendiary. But I think this is happening, for example, right now, in the very heated debates. I was going to say on the progressive side, but actually it's between progressives and conservatives as well on transgender issues. Right. Okay. Good. Okay. Do you want to touch that? Yeah, sure. Sure. No, that's fine. So, okay. Suppose. I I think there are mutual bad faith assumptions occurring in that debate. For example, there are assumptions against transgender people and trans activists that they are somehow trying to colonize some aspect of women's experience or something like that. We're having this weird debate in Australia at the moment over women's sport that is really being occasioned by election campaign in one particular seat. It's very odd that it's turned up, but Mm -hmm. it, it sort of has in that sort of weird way. And so you get this kind of predatory assumption. On the other hand, you get this assumption that the only people who have questions or concerns could only have it on predatory grounds, Mm. right? That is like, they only can proceed from some kind of bad faith mythology right. that is that is purely a function of their prejudice. Right. Oh, definitely. Same thing going on here. Same yeah. issue. Okay. So, so we would agree that the person who was cynical in that manner would be, I would say, would be wrong. Would be wrong. It's wrong to think that way. Yeah, but bo- both caricatures are right to some degree, aren't they? There would be people who do answer to that fad, bad faith description. So I suppose the question would then become, the question you're asking would become, how do you identify those people? And how do you identify those who aren't that? Do you have an answer for how you would identify them? Well, I mean, in saying the public sphere, yeah, it's very, uh, well, when someone's contradicting themselves, honestly, like some some of our senators and things like that, I mean, where they just pretended, okay, here's an example, right? So, um, there's a, a bunch of elections going on right now, and if you come out against Trump and you're a Republican, you're done for in some of these states, right? And some of these people have called Trump crazy in the past, uh, all kinds of stuff. Then election time comes and they sidle up to him, right? I would say that's evidence of bad faith. That would lead me to believe that they were in bad faith, right? And they've expressed a certain view 90 times on tape, and then all of a sudden they're saying Trump's the man. They just want to be in power then. <laughs> I do think I do think we're I do think we're slightly talking though about two very 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 different issues. Um, not so much 
Trump transgender, but making a moral evaluation of the sincerity or not, the consistency right. or not, the authenticity or not of a public figure who is engaged in a particular rhetorical performance. I would even say that the best way of describing a good deal of what goes on in the form of, say, political argument or, quote-unquote, moral seriousness really is a public rhetorical performance. There is something performative about it. And in the process mm -hmm. of a performance where you're trying to advocate for a particular position, it's quite ordinary. It may well be you know, part of the game that you need to demonize your opponents. You need to, uh, you need to perform a degree of your own sincerity and no compromise can be given. Otherwise you lose your status as the champion, the flag bearer of your particular side. And you need to do U-turns because you have publics as well to yeah, represent. Yeah. Party. That, that's yeah. exactly right. But that, that's something very different though, from refusing to listen to somebody who holds even a radically different position to what you do because my imagination is such that I can't believe that anybody in good faith, uh, uninfected by either prejudice or religious bigotry or something yeah. else, could possibly value that kind of thing or could possibly not see things the way that I do. And therefore, leaping to the assumption that behind the eyes, behind the public visage or behind the, the person that they present to me, that there is, in fact, a kind of cynical malfeasance. There's a willful... Uh, deception or manipulation of the facts. And it's, I guess it's that moral presumption or even that sort of quasi-moral epistemological presumption that beyond the words that you use, beyond the particular form of moral intensity or energy that you display, I have access to what you really think. I know what's really motivating you. And not only, I, I think, is that a form of moral evasion, I, I, I don't want to come to grips with somebody else's system of moral value or form of moral energy or conviction. But there's also a kind of a, an epistemological conceit or arrogance there that beyond what you say, I know the truth about you. And I think that, that leap to no matter what you say, I know what your agenda is, that is such an egregious and I think morally fraught move to make that it ought to be avoided at all costs unless we have very, 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 very good reason to think otherwise, which is mm -hmm. why I, I think, Gordon, we go back to your original point that part of our duty of care and love for one another is to presume the very best in the motivations of another person unless to some yeah. remarkable degree proven otherwise. That's right. Now, that's, that's Kierkegaard's position. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that's that's very well said. So let's take the abortion debate, which is really heated up right now in the United States. So people people that that feel the women have a right to choose, and they have all kinds of issues about the rights language. But uh, people that are against abortion just think these other people are self interested, trying to accrue power, uh, morally corrupt. Yeah. So they so there is this element of. When you take that kind of stance, you are, in effect, saying, I know you better than you might even know yourself. Yeah, so it is presumptuous. We're very sadly out of time. I, I um, God, there's so much more here. There really is. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it's your fault, your fault, Gordon. You were far too stimulating. I wish I could have been in the, on the first part of your discussion, too, which was so rich and uh, interesting about so but yeah, it's really, really fun. It's awful. We'll just Appreciate have to have it. you back, Gordon. That's the, that, that's the deal. Okay, sounds good. But uh, thanks again for having me. No, thank you for um, entertaining us and um, for saying we were rich and interesting, which will no doubt make the promo at some point. Uh, Gordon Marino is Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at St. Olaf College in Minnesota. Clearly has fantastic taste in broadcasters. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield as we discussed the ethics of ambivalence and then ended up where we ended up. You saw that. You heard it. We'll see you next week. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.